Well, good morning. You all are a rowdy crowd when he says welcome each other, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to be here with you today. Hey, if you're visiting with us today, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. We're going through a series starting in the book of Acts. We're only going to get about 10 chapters in. It kind of gets really repetitive. You start seeing the same things over and over and over again. So I'm going to lay some foundations to the first 10 chapters that hopefully you can read on your own and carry you through the rest of the way of the book. But what we're doing is going through this series and we're talking about who we are as a church as we look at the early church, the New Testament church. The series is called Be Bold, Safe is Boring. And I got to tell you, I love, love, love the name of that. Uh, I, I adopted, a, uh, I don't know, I hate the phrase mantra, but I adopted a phrase, a, a system of beliefs for myself, and it was basically that as a young kid. And, and I just never wanted to look back on my life and say, what would have happened if? And so I constantly try to say, in this moment, given what I'm facing right here, what is the thing that at the end of my life I wish I had done? And sometimes it makes me get up off the couch and play with my kids when I'm way too tired. Sometimes it makes me go and, you know, bless my wife when I'm really mad at her um, because she starts all the fights in our home. Um, <laughs> sometimes it has to do with calling somebody and forgiving them when you feel like they don't deserve it or haven't asked for it or haven't sought it. Uh, sometimes it has to do with giving money away that you're not sure that you should or, or even want to. I mean, it's just amazing. It included taking this job. It included um, all three of our children. <laughs> it's amazing how it just, God keeps doing these things where if I say at the end of my life, what would I do? What would I do? What would I wish I had done in this moment? It changes everything. And it really, uh, really started to come to fruition for me in 1989. Some of you weren't even alive then. Some of you uh, were already married with kids. However, in 1989, I was 12 turning 13 years old. I was born in 1976, and I grew up in Northeast Ohio in the Akron area, and, uh, and it, you know, it depends when, in the 70s, everybody knew Akron as the home of the tire companies, and now everybody knows it as the home of LeBron James. Regardless, nobody's ever heard of Akron, Ohio. On the other side of the state was this thing called Cedar Point. You've heard of it. <clears throat> and we used to go there all the time. It was Disney World for uh, Ohio families. And uh, we went to Cedar Point in 1989. They opened a ride called the Magnum. You guys remember the Magnum? How many of you have ridden the Magnum? How many of you were too afraid to ride the Magnum? Okay, so when the Magnum opened, it was over 200 feet tall. It was the highest and the fastest roller coaster in the world at that point. In fact, it was game-changing for, for those in the U.S. Over in Japan, they were experimenting not with loops and twists and turns, but with really high, really fast roller coasters. So Cedar Point decided to build the highest, the fastest. And when they built it, uh, the lines were unbelievably long to get in. For those who were there and you knew it, and it was like going to Disney World, you know, two hours in line to ride a, a two-minute ride. But that's how it was. And so when I got there, the first, I don't know, three or four times I went, 12, 13 years old, with my friends and family, I wouldn't ride it. I wouldn't ride it. I was terrified. It's so high. It's so fast. I don't know what I was afraid of, but I knew something bad could and would happen. Finally, my one friend had um, pushed me enough, peer pressured me enough into taking a bold step. So we got in line, and an hour and 45 minutes later, we are three people away from finally getting on the Magnum. And every step along the way, people are talking. And there's like an urban legend spreading about all the times that it's broken down. Did you hear about last week? Some people got stuck at the top. They had to climb all the way down. I heard a little boy fell off and he died. So an hour and 45 minutes later after hearing these rumors, I don't know 
I don't think anybody actually fell off and died. We get to the top, and we're three people away, and I look at my friend and say, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and let's just say he was not happy. And I wasn't kidding. And I crossed over. I said, I'm going to go the other side. I'll wait for you at the end of the ramp. And I went the other side, and I walked down the ramp, and he was mad. And he said, come on, we just waited an hour and 45 minutes, blah, blah, blah. You're such a wimp. And he's trying to, you know, peer pressure me into it. And I said, no, no, I'm too afraid. Here's the thing about today's message. Today we're going to talk about relationships. And I just have a theory. Most of you in this room are afraid of relationships. And I get it. I totally know why. Failed marriages, broken friendships, people who you've hurt, people who've hurt you. You don't feel like you have the skills necessary to make it work. And so consequently, you will spend hours, weeks, months, years of your life getting right up to it, getting really, really close, and then backing out. This explains why so many men in the room are dating or living with their girlfriend, fiance, because you're afraid to take that next step. What if it doesn't work? Some of you are avoiding really getting into a friendship or relationship with another person because you're afraid to be vulnerable because, man, there's so many times before you've been burnt or you've heard of others you've been burnt and you're thinking, man, I'm not going to go there. I'm just not going to let anybody in. I'll just always keep people at an arm's distance. You can get that close, but no closer. Some of you, your arms are more like, you know, 10-foot poles. That's true, isn't it? And some of you, it's not even your fault. What that person did to you at that age when you were so impressionable is just plain evil. And consequently, throughout your life, you carry the burden and the baggage of those things. And you carry them in every relationship. And I sometimes wonder when you're sitting in a room full of people who you call family or you call friends, if we were to see all the bags that people brought in and had and they're sitting next to them on the ground. And we were to dig through all those and dump them out in the middle of the floor. I sometimes wonder, like, what would happen? And my guess is you wonder what would happen. And my guess is you believe that if you were to actually dump your bag out on the floor, most people in that room would simply walk away. So you pack all your stuff back up. You put it right back up on your back. And you walk right back out the door. And you carry it right in to the next relationship. But you never get anywhere. Sound about right? We live in a world that is increasingly less relational. And we have all these facades of relationship, Twitter and Facebook, the Internet in general, TV. We have lots of interaction. There's lots of information being transferred between people and peoples. But there's a very little relationship. The simple truth is relationships are hard. They take time. They take investment. They take trust. They take hard work. They take mercy and forgiveness over and over. And it's amazing how often I have to forgive my friends. And they don't have to forgive me. It's just crazy. It takes patience. But above everything else, it takes one word. And that's the word we want to talk about today. So before we get there, let's talk real quick about the book of Acts. If you've ever read the book of Acts, the book of Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. But really, the best way you could write the name of the book of Acts is Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts 
of the Holy Spirit. Because the book of Acts, if you go through over and over and over again, the Spirit is either specifically named as the one who is empowering and equipping people to do the things of God, or he's generically mentioned in that miracles are happening and people are coming to faith and it makes no sense. There's stuff going on behind the scenes. And even though it doesn't say the Holy Spirit did it, if you read the rest of the Gospels, you know the Holy Spirit did it. And that's an important thing to note today. Because as we're digging into this thing on relationships, you need to know that it's a Spirit-driven activity. So what God wants to do in you, what God wants to do in me, through us, together as a group of people, he wants to equip us, he wants to empower you to go where you've always been afraid to go, to do what you've never thought you could do. And the only thing holding you back from accomplishing it is fear. So if we can get past that fear and be bold, what might happen? Well, the book of Acts launches, as I told you last week, with Jesus telling the disciples, you've been hiding in an upper room because you've been afraid of what might happen to you, and now I'm telling you, don't be afraid of what might happen to you. Get out of the upper room, and I want you to go, but wait, don't go just yet. Go back to that upper room where you've been hiding and stay there, not in fear, but in empowerment, because soon the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and when he does, he's going to come on you in power, and as soon as the Holy Spirit comes on them, Peter and the other apostles stand up, and they start proclaiming the name of Jesus, boldly. So only a few days late earlier, they were running for their lives and hiding, and now they're out being bold and just proclaiming a message about Jesus. Peter, the most timid only 50 days ago, is the most bold, telling people that what's going to happen to them and who Jesus is and all this stuff he was avoiding 50 days earlier. Now he's bold, bold, bold. And as he stands up and preaches this message about Jesus, the people ask him, we believe you. And they say, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Well, here's his response real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise, this promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. I want you to see this for a second. It's a promise. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that are Proverbs. They're wisdom passages. What we do with a proverb is when we read it, we don't assume that it's a guarantee for us. We read it and we say, if we follow these principles, this is most likely how it's going to happen. There's an entire book called Proverbs. It's not a guarantee that if you raise a child the way they should go, that they will not turn from it. But more often than not, that's how it's going to work. It's a proverb. However, this is not a proverb. It's not just a piece of wisdom. This is a promise. The gospel, the Holy Spirit is for you, for your children, for your grandchildren, and for those who are far away. That's a promise, meaning you can have confidence that God's going to come through. You don't have to chicken out. You don't have to not take the jump. You don't have to not get on the ride of life because of what might happen next. Because whatever happens next, good, bad, or otherwise, God will be with you. And so what happens next? 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. So now that raises the numbers to roughly 3,120 people, give or take, There are thousands of people now. And as you read the book of Acts, in almost every chapter there, in the first few chapters, it says, and the Lord added to their number, and the Lord added to their number, and the Lord added to their number. God keeps adding to the number of believers. Why? Well, because something profound is going on in the New Testament church. Something is changing among them. Something that I am convinced doesn't actually look necessarily like churches today. And here it is. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this, 
All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to share in meals, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. Would you want to be a part of a church like that? Well, as long as you were the one getting the receiving. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily if you were the one giving, giving and doing. And there is the breakdown in the American church. And maybe it's the breakdown in every church. I've only visited a couple international churches. One in Taiwan, a small church that met in the home of the orphanage we brought our son home from. I met, went to Mexico on our behalf. I've been to India. I've been to Canada. Went to kind of a formalized, I came to Lutheran and Catholic church there. It was not what I was used to. There is one word, one word that defined the early church. One word. It's one word that should define all of our relationships here. And here's that one word. You probably know it, but it's the one word, love. Love. This one word is so important that Paul rewrites the entire Bible around this one word. Everywhere Paul goes, he's facing conflict from people who believe, but they're holding on to the Old Testament rules. The do's and the don'ts. Do these things. Don't do these things. Everywhere he goes, he's facing Pharisees and persecutions, being thrown in prison, beaten, whipped, you name it. And everywhere he goes, he's dealing with it. He keeps saying the same thing. It's not about rules. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about love. We have one rule, one rule in Jesus Christ, the law of love. Now, the law of love is hard because it would be easier if you gave me a list of 50 things I had to do. Give me a list of 10 things. It would almost be easier because I could measure how I'm doing every single day. Yes, I'm doing that well. No, I'm not doing that well. Yes, I'm doing that well. No, I'm not doing that well. But Paul takes them all and condenses them into one thing. Love, love, that's it. And Jesus actually said it the same. He just took that one rule, love, and made it two applications. Love God, love others. But that's the one rule as a believer in Jesus Christ. So the question really for us is what does it mean to love? And then the second question is, how are we doing? Now, we start asking questions like, how are we doing as it relates to love? Here's what typically happens. It's easy to start looking at everybody else and how they're doing. Well, Matt, you failed me because you haven't loved me this way. Or the elders failed us because they didn't do this. Or my life group leader, man, if they would have just done that. My neighbor, those people at the school, you know, the church didn't. And as soon as we start looking at everybody else, our spouse and our kids and others around us, instead of looking in the mirror, what consequently happens is the whole thing falls apart. The only way, the only way the early church can love the way it loved is if everybody both gave and received love. So here's a question. How are you doing? Not the person next to you, not your spouse. How are you doing? I love this quote by Mark Buchanan in the book, Your Church is Too Safe. He says this, Jesus <clears throat> can't have hoped for a church that was more concerned with itself than with the world it inhabits. When Jesus announced that the kingdom was at hand, this can't, this can't be what he meant. What happened? When did we start making it our priority to be safe, 
instead of dangerous, nice instead of holy, cautious instead of bold, self-absorbed instead of counting everything lost in order to be found in Christ. See, this is what I long for. You ask Matt, what's your vision for this church? This right there, that's my vision for this church. My vision is that we collectively would be a group of individuals who are loving God and loving others boldly. We're not getting rid of holiness. We're not just saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you do. We're not saying that. No, no, no. It matters greatly what you do because what you do affects your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with me. It affects your relationship with each other. What you do matters, but I'm going to love you enough to take you where God is calling you to go, to lead you as best as I can with my abilities and what God has given me and and your life to help influence that. I'm going to love you enough to do it. But there's an element on this that's on you too. That's love. Love equips and love empowers and love is bold and love isn't afraid. And love goes to those who are both lovely and unlovely. Those who are both wise and powerful and rich and those who are poor or broken or in need. That's what love does. You might ask a question, how do I know? (laughs) Isn't that what Jesus did? Is it that what the early church did? Again, I love the way Mark Buchanan says this in the same book. He says, The kingdom of God is a republic of love, not the sentimental or sensual thing the world calls love, but the 1 Corinthians 13 kind, fierce, wild, huge, feisty, pure, the unbounded extravagance at the heart of the heart of God. This love is the song God sings over us and calls us to sing loudly. What makes the church both a mystery and a magnet to the world is when we love in this way, God's way. This love makes us relevant. Its absence makes us irrelevant, regardless of whatever else we're doing. Let's talk for a second about what that actually looks like. I want to take a look at that passage in Acts, and, and you've already read it, so you have it there. It's either in your notes or in your Bible. It was Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. But I just want to summarize. There's three categories of love being shown in that synopsis of what we see the New Testament church practicing. And I'm just going to tell you what they are because this is what we need to practice. Category number one, a love for God, a passionate love for God. We see this in these three statements that are made in those passages. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teachings. Let me just go down this road for a minute for those of you who are new at this thing called faith. God called a group of men, 12 men called disciples. One of them was a betrayer. His name was Judas. He killed himself. The others followed Jesus, saw him raised from the dead, and they became apostles. Paul, whose name used to be Saul, if you're reading Acts, you'll see Saul and then Paul. Paul was also an apostle because he saw the risen Lord on his way to Damascus. And just like the disciples, Paul later tells us that he spent one-on-one time with Jesus being trained. And I have no idea what that's like. Like Jesus came to him at some point, I don't know if it was a vision or what, but Jesus came to him and taught him the things he needed to know to go preach the gospel. So we have these apostles, and those apostles went out and planted churches. Now, if you go back and read your gospels, let me fill in some of the gaps for you. Jesus taught those men for roughly three and a half years. And as he was teaching them more and more and more, they didn't get everything they needed to get. That's why in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, you can look this up later, Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit's coming, and he will be your comforter. And I love this. I'm going to use this later in the series. But comforter in Greek doesn't mean what we think of. When I think of a comforter, I think of a nice warm blanket. When I think of a comforter, I think of my mom when I was sick. 
And maybe some of that's not an analogy that works for you, but my mom was a nurse, and she's a servant at heart, and she does a fantastic job of caring for me when I'm sick. My wife, same way. I'm the worst caretaker. I'm not a comforter. You don't want to be sick in my home if mama's not around. It's going to be ugly. That's not what the word means. In Greek, the word comforter actually means emboldener, courage giver. Well, that changes the meaning in English, doesn't it? The whole idea is when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to give you power and encouragement. He's going to make you bold. And then he goes on and he says, and the Holy Spirit will help you to remember everything that I've taught you, and he'll make even the other stuff you don't know yet clearer. He'll keep teaching you. So Jesus told these men, the Holy Spirit's going to give you everything you need. I've given you everything you need to this point. He'll give you the rest of the story, and then you will communicate it to the world. And so what happened is many of those guys, Paul and Peter and others, wrote down everything that Jesus told them, and some of them actually had people write it for them. So a guy named John Mark wrote the book of Mark. A guy named Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts because they hung out with Peter and Paul and wrote down everything that they were saying. Actually, Luke probably interviewed Peter, Paul, and Mary and then later wrote Puff the Magic Dragon. But anyway, (laughs) the New Testament church believed so powerfully in this book that we now have collected It was a series of letters that went out to the churches of telling the stories and the teachings of the apostles, but they dedicated their lives to it because they knew that there was a lot of lies and half-truths out there. My goodness, you can go to any self-help section in half-price books, Barnes & Noble, and find lots of advice. You can go to any person out there who will tell you their opinion about anything. But there's one place you can go and know with absolute certainty it's going to speak the truth no matter how encouraging or painful it is. And they dedicated their lives to it. And if you notice in those verses, they gather on a regular basis to just simply say to God, thank you. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, they gathered daily. Now look, guys, there's going to be things I say today that are challenges, things I say today that are encouraging, and there's things I say today that are just wisdom for you. But this is one of those ones that's going to smack you in the face. Let me just ask you this question. Does your life reflect this? Just yesterday, my mom's in town. She's been a great servant. Well, I sent my wife on vacation and um, just being an encouragement to me and uh, spending time with us. And uh, so I went yesterday to buy some things to help organize the house for my wife so she'd come back and the house would be amazing because I am the best husband of all time. And I'm not going to shy away from that. <clears throat> Hopefully, my wife will like everything I did, so I may, she may not agree with me on that statement. But anyway, uh, I went to a local store, and I ran into somebody. She said, are you the pastor at Kingsway? I said, yeah. Do you go to Kingsway? She said, yes, I'm a member. I, I don't think we've ever met. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, we've been members for X number of years. I said, wow, really? Yeah. She goes, we don't come very often. I said, yeah. And she gave me some great reasons why. Just saying that love for God doesn't look like I'll see you three times a year. Could you imagine going to the person on earth that you love the most and only talking to them and being with them three, four, five times a year? Could you imagine looking at your spouse and saying, I'll see you in six months, and then do that year in, year out for the rest of your life? 
I'm just telling you, if we are going to change the world, if you want to take part in being a movement of people who are going to impact the world significantly, it's going to start here. It's going to start with the love of God that leads you to worship and praise and regular digging into God's word. And notice this communion thing. So they gather together and they would have these things called agape feasts. If you may not know this, but the word agape literally means love. They have these love feasts where everybody would come together, the rich, the poor, the young, the old, the lovely, the unlovely, the smart, the unintelligent, the uneducated, and they'd gather in one place. And it becomes a problem. The church doesn't look like this forever. We get to the book of Acts and we find that they're giving the wealthy and the prominent the best seats and they're making the poor and the uneducated sit on the ground and James lays into them. He just goes off. This is unacceptable for the people of God. Nobody here, man, woman, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Nobody here is better than anybody else. It does not matter. And he gets mad at them because at their love feasts, when they're gathering together, it stops looking like love. They don't even wait for everybody to show up. They just start eating. But they would end these agape feasts with communion. They would actually break the bread. When you see that in the scriptures, it's a reference to communion. And they would do this weekly, which is why we do it weekly. We're not saying people do it monthly or yearly or quarterly or sinful. We're just saying this is what they did in the New Testament because in this moment, it's a relationship moment where they came together and experienced God, the love of God, and reminded themselves, he gave up everything for us. He didn't care what I did. He just loved me enough to come into my world. And so they gather together to celebrate that over and over and over again. But that leads us to the second point. And the second point is this, a love for other believers. Notice in those same verses, we see them fellowshipping. That's a word like we don't know what to do with. It's kind of a weird churchy world word. Where else do you hear the word fellowship outside the church? But fellowship has this meaning of connection. The basis of fellowship is time spent. So the believers in the New Testament church spent time together. They actually hung out. We are far too busy here in this country being human doings. You were not created to be a human doing. You were created to be a human being. And it's hard for us to shut off our TV and to shut off our iPads and to shut off our cell phones and just be in the presence of other people. We're so anxious, afraid we're missing out on experiencing something, unsure of what to say, Scared to be vulnerable. It's safer to just keep everybody at iPad distance. But notice the other things they did. They literally shared their meals. Man, it's a great like potluck of the first century. They didn't just share their meals, but they shared everything they owned. They opened their homes to each other, and then they shared their resources. And it actually, and we'll dig more into this. I don't want to steal all my thunder for later. But they actually went as far as to say some of them sold their land and gave it to others as they have need. Now, you need to know, and I, man, I don't even know if I can make this point fast enough, good enough. But this is huge. What are they always fighting about in the Middle East? Land. You know why? If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God calls a man named Abraham. He shows him a land. He says, this is the land I'm promising for you and for your descendants. And then Abraham wasn't faithful. He was afraid that God wouldn't do what God said he would do. And he didn't think that God's way was the best way. So he took matters into his own hands and he slept with his servant. And she had a child whose name was Ishmael. And then he later had a son named Isaac. And the problem is, Ishmael's kids and Isaac's kids are fighting over who gets the fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis. And I just explained to you what's going on in the world, and you didn't even know that's what it was. And so they're all claiming the land. They're all fighting over it. Well, according to the Bible, the land doesn't belong to Ishmael. It belongs to Isaac, the true children of God. But we know 
It's not about physical land. But it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. So by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, you have all these Jewish people coming in faith to Jesus. They're so moved by the gospel that they're taking this thing that is the center of their identity. And they're selling it because somebody else has a need. And that one little statement says something profound. They no longer built their identity on their stuff. They no longer chased and pursued physical, physical fulfillment of things as their hope for a better future, but believed that their eternity, the true Israel, was in heaven waiting to come down in the new Jerusalem so they could hold loosely to the things of earth. And if they saw somebody in need, they could say, you know what? I got food. I got blankets. I got clothes. I even have land that I'm not using. It was handed down to me by my great, 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 whatever. Let me go sell it to help you. That's love. And see, it's this kind of love that was focused on God and played out in the church that got us to the third category that we see in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, because it's the love that began to change the world, and that's where the third one is, the love for the world. Notice all these things that are in those phrases. Again, you can go look for all this yourself, Acts 2, 42 to 47, but we see miraculous signs and wonders. You want to talk about bold prayers? Some of my prayers are weak, as I've been telling you about. There's bold prayers. We're going to talk about this next week and the, the week after. We see the apostles literally gathering together and praying, God, would you do miracles among us? Literally, would you give us signs and wonders? And I'll talk about that more when we get there. But consequently, the love that they have for each other, as other Israelites watch them selling their property and going, you're crazy. Nobody gives up land. You can't even get land in Israel. There's none available. It's been deeded off for generations. Anyway, we don't care. We care more about God's people. We care more about what God's doing in the world. Over time, it had a profound impact. And the Lord added to their fellowship daily. You think? Could you imagine? Could you imagine a church that looked like the one that's described there? I can. I think it's not only the command of God and the call of God. I believe God wants to equip you and me to live that way. I believe what Mark Buchanan says is dead on. What's lacking today, what's lacking is extravagance. What's missing is a bigness of heart that seeks the other one out. Even the unlovely, even the unlovable, to lavish love on them. What's missing is a pouring out, an overflowing, a scattering far and wide. This, after all, is the love the Father has shown me and you. This is the song that he sings. So let me ask you these two questions, all right? So as I ask you these two questions, I just want you to simply do this. I just want you to simply ask, How am I doing? I don't want you to point a finger at anybody else and say, we aren't doing this. I want you to plug in you because the church is made up of the people of God. It's you. It's when somebody comes to you and says, well, I'm not going to vote this year. Well, why aren't you voting? Because one vote never makes a difference. Well, maybe one vote doesn't really ultimately technically make all the big of a difference. But you know what 250 million votes do? Makes a huge difference. So (coughs) 
yeah, you know what? If one of us walks away from here changed and says, I'm going to love, probably not a lot's going to change in our church and in our community. It'll change in your world, and maybe over time it'll change everybody else. But let me just tell you, if 2,300 people, which is about how many people come to Kingsway on a weekly basis, if 2,300 people chose to do this, we all went in together, could you imagine what we could do in Avon and Brownsburg and Plainfield and West Indy and Hendricks County? So here, there's two questions I believe that God is calling us to really wrestle with. First question, is the love in our church such <clears throat> that people in Hendricks County and beyond are willing to forsake all other loves just to know this love? Is the world around us literally willing to forsake everything else? When they look at it and say, I don't even know why they do what they do. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. But I just want to be a part of it. And here's my second question. Again, you're answering this for you, not for us, for you. Would they give up their addictions, their diversions, their compromises, and their resentments because the love that the people of Kingsway Christian Church has is better and truer and deeper than anything they found anywhere else? Now imagine with me for just a moment. Let's just dream, okay? What would happen if a single mom showed up with her kids and she's struggling, she's struggling to make ends meet, she's struggling to put the pieces together. Every day's a battle. But she shows up here and her kids go into a class. And instead of having leaders who are tired and burnt out because there's not enough of them, or maybe there's nobody that day and we had to close that class and combine them, they showed up to a smiling faces who said, I love you, welcome to Kingsway. What would happen if widows and widowers who are in the loneliest, most painful portion of the life that they have ever known showed up here, instead of feeling like they didn't have a place, there wasn't something for them, were immediately greeted by a smiling face over and over and over again and connected to a group of people who said, hey, what do you need? You need somebody to shovel your driveway? Got your back. You need somebody to pull your weeds? I'm there for you. It may sound like no big deal to you, but to them, it's huge. Imagine with me a place where people who literally are struggling just to pay their bills every single month could come and get food or electricity or a different job or maybe even coaching on how to handle their finances because they showed up at a place that said, it's not about me, it's about you. Imagine a place where a couple is on the brink of divorce and they're just going to become another statistic. But instead they show up and there's a group of people who say, look, I've been down this road and I've sought God and he's helped me and I have some wisdom for you. Let me step up and pour into your life. Imagine a place where people who are addicted to gambling or food or alcohol, or cigarettes, or sex, could show up and not be judged, but instead could have their arms open and say, I love you too much to let you stay the way you are. And instead of the shame of what they've done in secret, paralyzing them from taking that bold step, they're so emboldened by a love of people who says, I'm not going to judge you, but I'm also not going to leave you. So they come forward to get the help they need. 
See, everything that I've mentioned, we have ministries for every single one of these things in place. The thing about almost all those things and many more that I did mention is they're missing you. The reality is, I don't know, a third, I don't know what the exact number is of our church, is engaged in those ministries in some way or another. A third. And it's missing you. And I have a fear that when the world shows up, it might not see the kind of love that God is calling us to because we haven't shown it to them. But they want it. I think you want it. And here's the crazy thing about relationships and the crazy thing about love. Love is only as good as much as you give and get. I'm going to give a little principle here to, to help you out. See, some of you are just needy, and you don't know you're needy because needy people never know they're needy. That's just how it goes. Needy people always think they're normal. And normal people never think they're good enough. It seems like that's just the pattern. Is it always that way? Probably not. But it just seems to be the pattern. And so, yes, a small portion of people are just needy. And they're going to wear you out. They're going to exhaust you. Because they're always going to take, 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 take. And they're never going to give. And that's sinful and ungodly. But then there's some of you who all you could do is give, 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 give. And you can never receive. And the problem is you have a pride issue. You have an arrogance issue. You have a faith issue because you think that you always have to be the one to give because in all reality, if you give, you can keep people at arm's length. You don't actually ever have to need, have something emotional for somebody else to pour into you. You don't actually have to have a, a, a something that you need somebody to step into your life and to coach you or teach you or serve you or help you. You're strong enough. You're good enough. All on your own. And that's not biblical either. And both of those extremes don't honor God. The only way we get to Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, is for you to give and for you to receive. When it's your turn to receive, you can receive it. And when it's your turn to give, you give it. And that's how we get there. We see this in Galatians chapters 5 and 6. I love it. It's not my point for today's message, so I want to hit it quickly. But Paul says this, you know, carry each other's burdens and carry your own load. And it's very confusing if you read it because you're like, what are you talking about? But he uses two different words in the Greek. It's not Paul's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's simply saying, sometimes life gets so hard, you get overwhelmed. And it's like not like the last straw on the camel's back. It's like they stuck a camel on the camel's back, and you just get stuck. And you need somebody to come alongside you, put their arm around you, put your arm around them and say, look, I'm going to walk with you through this season. But you have your own load to carry. You never stop carrying your load. You must carry your own weight of your own life, your own decisions, your own responsibilities while someone helps carry you through it. That's biblical love. But there has to come an end point where you say, I'm no longer putting this burden on you to help me through. I'm now carrying it on myself and I'm strong enough now to go give it away to somebody else and do the same thing in somebody else's life that somebody did in mine. That's biblical love. So I want to give I want to give what I believe are three helpful clues, <laughs> guidelines for loving others well. First one, Jesus is Messiah. And you may go, that's not really all that helpful. No, see, this is hugely helpful. Because if Jesus is Messiah, guess who isn't? You! That ought to be, you ought to be going, yes, that's great news. See, if Jesus is Messiah, then you don't have to save anybody. You don't have to fix anybody. You don't have to be the one to, to redeem anybody. You know, your job, keep pointing them to Jesus, period, over and over. So when somebody comes to you and says, you, know, you didn't do this for me, you could say, man, I did my job. 
I can't save you. I can't fix you. I can't put you back together. I can help shoulder the load. I can help carry you through. I can love you. I can be there for you. But I can't fix this for you. And this is so helpful for some of you because the boundary that's missing from you and loving somebody else is the fact that you keep getting burnt because you keep trying to save and fix. Some of you single men and women in this room, the reason you can't find a healthy relationship is because you keep trying to fix and save the other person. It might be time for you to cut the string, move on, and say, I'm no longer going to be a Messiah. I'm going to point people to the Messiah. You cannot love unless you're loving like this. Number two, number two, accept the gift of limits. Everybody in this room has limited time, limited money, limited wisdom, limited resources. Everyone. Accept that it's actually a gift from God. I am an extreme extrovert. If I weren't married, I would be constantly in burnout because I would spend all my time with people fixing them as their Messiah all the time. <clears throat> One of the gift of limits that God gave me is I married an extreme introvert. And this caused extreme tension in my marriage because my wife is broken. I don't know what's wrong with her. That's a joke. And she's still on an airplane flying back. She is a gift from God to hem me and to protect me from myself. Recently, my family has gone through some struggles personally, stuff I've hinted at but never talked about publicly. It took me a long time, but I finally got to see that it was actually a gift from God. I thought it was going to be a, a, a curse that would hurt me from being able to do more for God, but it was God's way of saying, Matt, you're not the Savior. I'm the Savior. Your job is simply to show up, use your gifts, your talents, your resources, resources and your abilities to help serve. Guess what? If you're going in debt to get somebody else out of debt, that's not God's will. It's a limit that God has placed on you. You can only help to this point. And then it's up to a new plan, a new path, or someone else to step in. And then that leads us to the third one. And this is the, the, the it's all builds, like one, two, three. Do for others what you want them done, what you want done for you, what you want them to do for you. Man, I wish Jesus would have put that in the Bible. Because that is such good advice. And if you're new at this, Jesus did put that in the Bible. I didn't make that up. This is the bottom line. After you've done this, Jesus is Messiah. I'm not saving anybody. I'm not fixing anybody. I have to accept the fact that I have limits on my life. I cannot do everything or save everyone. There are limits and they're from God. Now, what would I do for somebody else? If this were me and I were in their shoes, what would I want someone to do for me? Would I just want somebody to give me an hour or two of my time? Would I just need a meal prepared? Man, one of the families in this church brought us a meal this week. It was such a blessing. My wife's out of town. I sent her out of town to refresh her batteries. My mom paid for my wife to go. Patty Beavers and Rick Beavers down in Florida received my wife and took care of her down there. And then a family here prepared a meal for us. I mean, it was just like everybody pitched in so that I could do this thing so that I can do what I do for you. But it took a lot of people just pitching in. They didn't all do everything. They just each did something. I mean, what would you do for the people in your life that God has placed around you that desperately need love? But let's ask that question also on the other side. What would you do in your shoes right now if you need love? And you were sitting with a friend, and you're talking to them, and they were telling you your story as if it were their story. Would you look at them and say, man, you just need to reach out. And you, you've got to get some help. You've got to talk to somebody about this. And if you would say that to your best friend, 
then why not say it to yourself? You don't have to be alone. You don't have to fight through this alone. We have many ministries here to serve you. One of our primary, primary methods that we put all of this together is through something called life groups. Life groups. And look, life groups aren't perfect because they're made up of imperfect people and they're led by an imperfect staff. But our life groups are a phenomenal place for you to receive the ongoing fellowship, prayer, worship, and relationships that you desperately need. We have a core value here. The core value is relationships, investing in the lives of other believers. And this core value of relationships, the reason that we have it is because we believe that this is what the Bible tells us to do, and we believe the best way to carry that out is through life groups. I think I have that as a slide, if you can get that up there. Relationships. And the reason I put this up here is because I want you to think about this. I'm about to contradict myself, which is never a good thing to do when you're preaching, but stick with me here. I believe, I believe that some of you desperately need connected with other believers, not other non-believers. You are surrounded by non-believers in your everyday life. You need some believers. Some people are going to speak truth and encouragement into your life. However, some of you are so afraid to take the next step. You're afraid to get on the roller coaster, but you don't know that you're about to have the ride of your life. You're about to meet the best friend you never knew if you would just take the step. If you are ready to do that today, or at any point in this series, we got a nice little brochure, color brochure. You could find it out here at one of our kiosks and just grab it, fill it out. There's lots of steps you could take, but maybe the next step for you is just join a group. You turn it in, and we will contact you. But here's the other side of that. Now, about a year ago, our uh, life group's pastor, uh, Jeff Shields, stepped off staff. He's now on staff over at our school. Now, we haven't had a, a person in that position for about a year. Connie Seiferman has done a bang-up job. If you know Connie Seiferman, would you just give her a hug and, uh, and just tell her how much you appreciate her? But she's doing the job of two, and the reality is right now our budget is down, and we don't have the money to hire somebody. I'm, this isn't about asking you to give more money. I won't argue if you want to, but that's not what this is about. I'm telling you this. Let's say this message is effective both online and today, and let's say that 500 people walk out of here and want to join a life group. The reality is we don't have enough leaders. And we don't have somebody who's in the position who's able to train and put together all these events to train them. So we have a conundrum. We have a broken system that we don't know how to fix until giving goes up and we're able to hire somebody. So here's how we're going to fix it in the short term. If you're sitting here today and you believe, not that you know everything you need to know, but you've been doing this thing called Jesus long enough, long enough, that you think you can take the next bold step, and you can step out and say, I want to lead a group. I tell you what, Connie, myself, we'll gather some other people here at Kingsway have been doing it a long time. We will make sure that we come alongside you and train you, because I just believe that God wants to do something in our church. He wants to move people to do this, but I don't want people hitting a wall and being told, well, there's no place for you. There's no room in the inn for you. I want people to show up and experience the love of Jesus. So some of you need to leave the life group you're already in. You need to step out of it and say, you know what? I've been taking for a long time from this group, and it means a lot to me, but I need to give now. I need to go lead some other people where God has led me, and I'm just asking you to step up. Consider doing it. Again, take one of these brochures, check, join a group, and when Connie or whoever calls you, just say, look, I don't just want to join a group. I want to launch a group, and we will work with you to figure it out. All right. Let me close with this. Here's Paul's piece of advice, and I just want to close with this piece of advice. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. Before I read this, you know what I want to do? I want to make this our prayer. Let's do that. Oh, God. 
please don't let us pretend just to love others. God, would you equip us to really love them? God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to hate what is wrong and to hold tightly to what is good? God, would you help us to love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other? God, we get tired. And sometimes, God, we don't just get tired, we get selfish. So would you help us to not be lazy ever, but to work hard and serve you enthusiastically? Not like we have to do it, but we look forward to doing it, God. Lord, we pray, give us the strength to rejoice in our confident hope that you are coming back, that you are going to equip us. We don't have to be afraid. We can step out. We can take a chance. God, would you teach us to be patient in trouble? God, we pray that we would never stop praying these kinds of bold prayers for you. God, I pray that you would make us aware of those in need around us. God, stir in us a heart of generosity that we might be able to be hospitable to them, ready to help them. God, help us to stop spending all our money on ourselves, to make more money available, more flexibility in our lives, that we might do more for them and in them. And God, these last ones are really hard. Would you give us the patience and the strength to bless those who persecute us, our enemies? God, teach us not to curse at them, or to hold it against them, but instead, God, to pray, to actually pray that you would bless them. God, teach us to be happy with others who are happy and to weep, God, with those who are weeping. God, help us when we're happy and others are weeping not to uh, withhold our joy from them, but also not to hurt them. But also, God, when we are weeping and others are joyful, teach us, Lord, to walk in balance as we walk in mercy with each other. Lord, we pray verse 16 now. Help us to live in harmony. Teach us not to be too proud to enjoy the company of people who aren't like us. God, we love you. This is our bold prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go to communion right now. Our servers are gonna go prepare. And uh, I just want you to take this time to commune, community with your Father. Would you do me this one favor? I know you're rustling and getting ready to close things down. Do this one thing. Spend part of your communion time with you and God, and then spend part of your communion time praying for somebody else not in your family, your biological family. And in doing so, may God stir in us a heart of love.